Have you ever stopped and thought about all the contradictions associated with Christmas? The first Christmas, the angels said peace toward men of goodwill. Today, the Christmas season is a time of a rising suicide rate. In fact, it's the highest of any time of the year. The first Christmas was a poor one with a manger and a stable. Today's Christmas is an extreme display of wealth. The first Christmas was marked by one star that marked the birth of the Savior. Today's Christmas is characterized by thousands of flashing lights that mark all the sales where you can buy all the things that don't fit anyway. The first Christmas, wise men came to worship. Today, fools have parties of wickedness at Christmas time. The first Christmas, Christ came to give abundant life. Today, a huckster named Santa Claus takes what is valuable and gives tinsel in return. As I think about all the contradictions between the birth of Christ and Christmas of today, I can't help but think of all the prophecies back in Hebrew Scripture that had to seem like contradictions to the very men who penned them. What I mean is, one prophet would write, The Messiah is coming to conquer. Then he would turn around and say, The Messiah will be rejected. He'll be killed. A prophet would say, The Messiah will be a king of glory. He will be majestic, splendid. And then he would say, The Messiah will have no beauty. He will be just a servant or a slave. The prophet would write that the Messiah will come in judgment, in flaming fire. Then another would say, The Messiah will come in peace. I'm sure the prophets wondered how to resolve these seemingly contradictory statements about the Messiah. In fact, the Apostle Peter even said that the prophets, quote, made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. But that's the key. They didn't know it would be in that order, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow, because oftentimes their prophecies just mixed them all together. They would write about sufferings. They would write about glory. Well, which is it going to be? Which was it going to be? As the prophets compared their writings in their notes, They could not figure out who could fulfill all those prophecies and how all those prophecies could be fulfilled by the same person in the same time period. The prophets could not figure out who or how anyone could fulfill all the apparently contradictory prophecies that were in their writings. And this is the very thing that confused John the baptizer. You see, John came preaching judgment, right? I mean, read John's message. You better repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He's, he's, he's coming in judgment. And remember, John received all of his information from God. The Bible says the word of God came to John in the wilderness. So this message was from God. The Messiah is bringing judgment. 
So when Jesus came performing deeds of mercy, John was confused. He was caught in the paradox of prophecy. Look with me by way of introduction this morning to Matthew chapter 11, and I'll show you what I mean. Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. We read, Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John, this is not the Apostle John, this is John the Baptizer, John the Baptist. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? You see, John is confused. He thought he knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but as Jesus continued doing what Jesus was doing, it didn't make sense to John. John's thinking, listen, I came preaching judgment. I came saying, repent, the the king is coming, he's going to judge and set up the kingdom. None of that's happening. Instead, Jesus is going around healing people, feeding multitudes. So when John heard the things that Jesus did, He couldn't fit that in with the things that he said Jesus would do. And again, I remind you, John got his message from God. So John sent some messengers to get some information to straighten out his thinking. He says, he sends these two and he says, are you, Jesus, are you the one or should we look for someone else? This doesn't fit. This doesn't make sense. Notice the response. Verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Why did Jesus say that and not give a more specific answer? Because verse 5 is a paraphrase of Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, and Isaiah 61, 1. In other words, Jesus was saying this, You go tell John that I am right on schedule. I am doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. You go tell John I am fulfilling prophecy about the Messiah. Jesus was fulfilling prophecies that were written about the Messiah. You see, John had the same problem all the Old Testament prophets had, and that is they didn't see a distinction between the first coming and the second coming of the Messiah. The first coming is all about deeds of mercy and being rejected. The second coming is all about judgment and kingdom. But they didn't see the distinction. So when they would mix all of these together, meld them all together, it made no sense. So as a result, many of the prophecies seemed contradictory. But even if they had realized the difference between the first and second coming of the Messiah, they still wouldn't have been able to solve all the paradoxes of the Old Testament. So I want to mention five of them this morning for us to consider, and I'll show you what I mean. First of all, the prophecies of the virgin birth. Go back with me to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. This is after the creation and then subsequent fall of Adam and Eve. God is now giving out the curse. And we pick it up in verse 14. Of Genesis chapter 3, so the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, 
and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. As you probably know, theologians consider this the very first prophecy in all of Scripture, the first prophecy about the gospel, the coming of Jesus, and the battle between Jesus and Satan in which Jesus bruises his head and in the process his heel, Jesus' heel is bruised. That's, of course, a reference to the crucifixion which destroyed Satan ultimately and yet was very costly to Jesus. But that's not the focus of what I want us to to really zero in on this morning. What I want you to notice is something very amazing about this prophecy. Women don't have seed. Men do. Women have an egg. Men have seed. But here, God says Messiah will come from the seed of the woman. As far as I know, this is the only place in the Bible that refers to the woman having seed. Christ is always referred to as the seed of David or the seed of Abraham. But here, God says that the Messiah shall be from the seed of a woman. That is an allusion to or a reference to or a prophecy about the virgin birth. The Messiah will come from a woman and a woman alone. And then look at Isaiah 7 where it's spelled out in more detail. Turn to the right, past Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, then Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, very famous words that are often read around the Christmas holiday. They are recited. Uh, Verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign... Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is the very passage that Matthew quotes in chapter 1 of his gospel, as we'll see in just a moment. And by the way, the Greek word that Matthew uses in his quotation of this verse makes it clear that this is a reference to the virgin birth. The reason why I'm stressing this point is because some liberal theologians and some feminist theologians say that the original Hebrew word here means a young woman of marriageable age, not a virgin. Now this Hebrew word can mean that, could mean that, but the Holy Spirit and Matthew make it clear by virtue of the word used in Matthew chapter 1 that the Hebrew word here should be translated virgin. Behold, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In addition to these texts, Daniel chapter 2, verses 34 to 45, also has reference to the virgin birth when it describes a stone cut out of the mountain without hands. The stone clearly in that dream represents the Messiah. And the fact that it was cut out of the side of the mountain without, without hands refers to the fact that it was without human instrumentation or without human origination. So when you consider all these passages in Hebrew Scripture, I'm sure the prophets would scratch their heads and wonder, how can a child be born from a virgin? 
This is the same problem Mary had in, in Luke chapter 1. Turn over with me to the New Testament to Luke chapter 1. By the way, the term virgin birth is a little bit of a misnomer because the birth of Jesus was in a sense like any other birth. All births are amazing and, and, and miraculous in some ways. But it was really the conception of Jesus that was truly and technically miraculous. It was a virgin conception. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, we are told in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and consider what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin, since I do not know, have not known a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. This is the only passage in the Bible that offers any kind of explanation about how Mary conceived as a virgin. It says the power of the highest will overshadow you. But most people won't accept that explanation. Even many people who call themselves Christians do not believe in the virgin birth. The last poll I saw stated that 44% of the seminary students in America do not believe in the virgin birth. And those seminary students will populate the pulpits of churches and continue to preach against the virgin birth. 44% of the seminary students in America don't believe in the virgin birth. And 41% of the people in the major mainline denominations, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, etc., don't believe in the virgin birth. You know why? It seems contradictory to the supposed intelligence of man. Not only do people deny the virgin birth, Satan really attacks the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because the virgin birth of Jesus and the deity of Jesus are inseparable. Some say that Jesus is just the natural son of Joseph and Mary. Others say he is the result of a love affair between Mary and a Roman soldier. That became a popular view in the 6th century. Or he's the result of a love affair between Mary and a Greek merchant. That became popular in the 11th century. This is exactly what the Pharisees threw in the face of Jesus in John 8 when they said, well, we're not born of fornication. And the implication was, you were Jesus. You were born of fornication. That was a stigma on Jesus throughout his entire earthly ministry because very few people actually believed he was born of a virgin. Furthermore, not only has the virgin birth been denied down through the centuries, it has been counterfeited so that it will lose its uniqueness. 
Listen to some of these counterfeits of the virgin birth. The Greek god Dionysius was supposedly born to Semele, the wife of Zeus, without an act of his father. Tammuz was born to Semiramis, the wife of Nimrod, as a result of becoming impregnated by a sunbeam. This legend passed into all cultures. In Egypt, it was known as Isis and Horus. In India, it's known as Issi and Iswara. In China, it's Shingmu. In Phoenicia, it's Ashtaroth and Baal. In Greece, it is known as Aphrodite and Eros. In Asia, it is Sibylle and Dioasis. It was said that Buddha was conceived by a noble elephant. Hinduism claims that the divine Vishnu was reincarnated seven times. Finally, he reincarnated himself in the womb of Devaki and was born as her son, Krishna. In Greco-Roman mythology, Perseus was conceived when Jupiter dropped a golden rain shower on his wife. Even Alexander the Great claimed to have been virgin-born. You see, Satan loves to attack the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, because the virgin birth and the deity of Christ are inseparable. But no matter how contradictory the virgin birth of Christ seems to the mind of modern man, we will stand on Romans 3, verse 4, which says, Let God be true and every man a liar. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. Second, let's consider the prophecies of the God-man. Go back to Isaiah 7 once again, where we were just at a moment ago. Isaiah chapter 7. And let's read verse 14 again and focus on a different part of the verse this time. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. That is not technically a name. It was a title that characterized the life of Jesus. The little word L at the end, look at the word Emmanuel. The E-L at the end is the Hebrew name for God. In, in Hebrew scripture, God is called El Shaddai. Many of you know that name from the famous song a number of years ago. He is called El Elyon, El Makadishkim. All of these are Old Testament names for God. Now notice what this verse is saying. God, Emmanuel, God will be born as a son. I'm sure Isaiah couldn't figure that one out. How can a son be born who is God, and how can God be born as a son? That seems contradictory. He would be a child. Unto us a child is born. He would be a child, yet he would be God. How does this work? Skip over to chapter 9 for another prophecy that I'm sure had to stump Isaiah. Chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See that third title? There's Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. That could also be translated from Hebrew, Father of Eternity. There's the paradox again. How can a child be born who is the Almighty God? How can a child be born in time who is the Father of Eternity? And there were other prophecies related to this. 
When a Jewish scholar began to piece together all the various prophecies about the Messiah, it had to blow his mind. Genesis 3.15 says he would be from the seed of a woman. Genesis 22.18 says he would be from the seed of Abraham. Psalm 132.11 says he would be from the seed of David. Daniel 7.13 says he would be the son of man. Psalm 2.7 says he would be the son of God. How can one person be all of that? How could God be man and man be God and yet be the son of God and the son of man all at the same time? The paradox resolves in Jesus Christ. Jesus knew that this was hard to understand. So in Matthew 22, he asked the Pharisees a question since they were always trying to test him with questions. Go to Matthew chapter 22 and notice his question. The very first book of the New Testament, the first gospel, Matthew 22, verse 41. We are told while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Now, he's obviously referring to himself, but he's not, he doesn't say it in that way. He just is asking them a general question. What do you think about the Messiah? What is your theology of the Messiah? What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, Then, How does David, in the Spirit, call him Lord, saying, and here he quotes from Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. You see, Jesus was the Son of David, human, and the Son of God, divine. He was as much God as if he were not man at all. He was as much man as if he were not God at all. He was not all God and no man. He was not all man and no God, not half God and half man. He is the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. And there's no way the Old Testament prophets could have understood all that completely. Jesus' favorite title for himself was the Son of Man, which emphasizes his humanity. And yet, he could say to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. i tell you something. You start digging into the nature of Christ, the dual nature of Christ, humanity and deity together in one person without any mixing, without any separating of the person, and it is mind-boggling. No wonder the Old Testament prophets couldn't completely understand it. The next set of paradoxical prophecies we want to consider are regarding the Messiah's home. One of these is a prophecy in the technical sense of the term as we usually use it. The others are passages of Scripture that Matthew uses to demonstrate informal event correspondence between the life of Jesus and Old Testament Scripture. For example, Micah 5.2 says the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Matthew uses Hosea 11.1 to show that Jesus came out of Egypt. And Matthew uses Isaiah 11.1 as sort of a veiled prophecy to say that the Messiah came from Nazareth. Well, how can that be true of one man? Which was it? Where did he come from? Bethlehem? Egypt? Nazareth? Look at Matthew chapter 2. Go back a few chapters to Matthew chapter 2. 
Matthew wrote his gospel to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Therefore, he often quotes Old Testament passages to show how they were fulfilled or filled fuller with meaning by the Lord Jesus. Notice verse 1, Matthew 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east, or wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Jesus, the Messiah, was born in Bethlehem. And that fulfills Micah 5, 2, which specifically states the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. But skip down to verse 13. We, we read, Now when they, that is the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt. Stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And he was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. So that corresponds to Hosea 11.1 and adds more to the concept that Hosea mentions there. It's actually a parallel between God's love for Israel and release from Egypt and God's love for his son, the Lord Jesus, and his release from Egypt. But Matthew's not done. Skip down to verse 22. Verse 22 says, But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So here you have this Another correspondence in verses 22 and 23. That corresponds to Isaiah 11.1 and fills it with more meaning. You see, God even arranged the political situation so that the birth and early life of Jesus would fulfill and correspond to Old Testament passages of Scripture. And beloved, there's no way the Old Testament prophets could have known all those things about the Messiah and how it would all fit together that he would be born in Bethlehem, spend some time in Egypt, be called out of Egypt, and eventually settle in Nazareth. No way they could have known all that. The fourth area of prophecy that had to stump the prophets was the right to the throne. The Messiah was to be a king. That's obvious from the teaching of the Old Testament. In fact, the very title Messiah, Mashiach, means anointed one. He was anointed to be the king and to rule on David's throne. For him to be the king, he had to come through David's line. David's line, as you know, was the kingly line. So the Messiah had to come from David's line. And the right to the throne was passed from David to Solomon and down through that line. With that in mind, go back to Matthew chapter 1. Just a few chapters back to the left. Here in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew traces the genealogy of Joseph. Luke, on the other hand, traces the genealogy of Mary. 
Luke traces the genealogy of Mary all the way back to David also to show that Mary had royal blood. Luke shows that Mary did not come through Solomon, but rather through Nathan. But Matthew is concerned with Jesus' right to the throne through Solomon, so he's tracing Joseph's genealogy all the way back through Solomon and David. Let let me show you. Verse 6. Verse 6 tells us, And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. You can see what Matthew is doing. He's tracing the kingly line. David, Solomon, etc. So verse 7, we read, Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah. Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram. Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz. Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Ammon. And Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. Now that's really important. Notice what he, we, Matthew tells us here. Jeconiah was the last king to rule in Israel before the Babylonian captivity. During his reign, the Babylonian army came in and took Israel captive. After the return from Babylon, no king ever ruled again in Israel. There was still the kingly line, but no king ever sat on the throne. And that's why the Jews rejected Herod. They knew he wasn't a legitimate king. He was not a legitimate king. So Matthew is tracing the kingly line, and I want to show you what he does. Look at verse 12. It says, After they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiud, and Abiud begot Eliakim. And Eliakim begot Azor, and Azor begot Zadok, and Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliud. Eliud begot Eliezer, Eliezer begot Matthan, and Matthan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary. So Joseph was the firstborn male in his family, And as Matthew demonstrates, his genealogy can be traced right back to Solomon and David. Do you realize that if there had been a king in Israel at this time, and there wasn't a legitimate king, there was Herod, but if there had been a king in Israel at this time, it would have been Joseph. Lowly Joseph from Nazareth. Joseph had the legal right to the throne. So Jesus' right to the throne came through Joseph. But there's a major problem. A major problem. Let me show it to you back in Jeremiah chapter 22. Go back to Jeremiah. We were in Isaiah earlier. The next book is Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 22, beginning in verse 28. Twenty-two, twenty-eight. It says, Is this man... Coniah, and that's short for Jeconiah, okay, same guy that we just read about in Matthew. Is this man Coniah or Jeconiah a despised, broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants? That's what we just read about in Matthew. He, he and his descendants were there when the Babylonians came and took the people into captivity. So why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless. Now what does that mean? 
doesn't mean he won't have any children because we just read about his children here and in Matthew. He had children. Write this man down as childless. Well, what do you mean by that, Jeremiah, or, or the Lord? The Lord is prophesying through Jeremiah. What do you mean? A man shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Do you see what this is saying? The line of Jeconiah was cursed. God says no seed of Jeconiah can inherit David's throne. And yet legally, the only lineage with a right to the throne was Jeconiah's. What a paradox. Go back to Matthew 1 to see how this paradox is resolved. Back to where we were just a moment ago. Matthew 1, verse 16, tells us, Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Messiah. Notice that Matthew doesn't use the word begot in relation to Joseph, the husband of Mary. This is the only place in the genealogy where Matthew doesn't use that word. Instead of using the word begot, Matthew mentions Joseph's wife, Mary. And then Matthew follows the mention of Mary with the little phrase, of whom? Of whom? It is fascinating to note that in the Greek text, that phrase is feminine genitive singular. Feminine genitive singular. You say, well, what's the significance of that? Well, as you know, you don't have children in the singular. It takes two to have a child. But this child was different. This child's birth was unique. He was born of Mary and Mary alone. He was not born of Joseph and Mary. Joseph did not beget Jesus. Jesus was Mary's child, not Joseph's. Joseph wasn't his actual or biological father, although Joseph was his legal father. Jesus was born of Mary and Mary alone because she was a virgin when he was conceived and she was a virgin when he was born. You say, well, what's the point? Here's the point. Legally, Jesus had to be Joseph's child to inherit the right to the throne. But physically, he couldn't be Joseph's child, or he would inherit the curse of Jeconiah. The paradox is resolved by the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Legally, Jesus inherited the right to the throne through Joseph, but physically he bypassed the curse on Jeconiah's line because he was born of the Virgin Mary. So Jesus is the king, and he will be the king forever. There's no way the prophets could have figured out that paradox. No way they could have unscrambled that egg. Then the final set of prophecies I want us to consider this morning are the prophecies concerning the stone. Oftentimes in the Old Testament prophecies, the Messiah is seen as a stone. For example, Isaiah 8.14 says the Messiah will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. A rock of offense was a huge rock that men were dashed against to be crushed and destroyed. Isaiah 28 says he would be a precious cornerstone. Psalm 118.22 says he would be a rejected cornerstone. Daniel says he would be a smiting stone. Now how could one man be all of those? How could he be a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, a cornerstone, a rejected stone, a precious stone, and a smiting stone? Peter resolves it for us in 1 Peter chapter 2. 
Turn over with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, our final passage that we will look at this morning. Over near the end of the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2. Here in this chapter, Peter quotes portions of Isaiah 8, Isaiah 28, and Psalm 118 to show how the apparent contradictions are resolved in Jesus. Notice what he does. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. He says this, Therefore it is also contained in the Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. Do you see how Peter resolves this paradox? He says the paradox is resolved depending on your relationship to the Messiah. He is precious to those who believe. He is offensive to those who do not. To those who do not believe, Jesus is a rock of offense that men are dashed against to be crushed and destroyed. To those who do not believe, Jesus is a stumbling stone. The Greek word refers to a crooked stick that was placed under a trap so that when you hit the stick, the trap comes down and kills you. That's what Jesus is to those who refuse to believe. He is a smiting stone. But to those who believe, he is a precious cornerstone. The cornerstone was the most important stone in a building because it was the stone that all the other stones were lined up with vertically and horizontally. The cornerstone determined what the building would be like. So Jesus is the cornerstone with which we line up our lives. But as you know, many refuse to line their lives up with Christ. For them, he is the rejected cornerstone. For those of us who believe, he is the precious cornerstone. The paradox is resolved depending on how you are related to the Messiah. You see, the birth of Jesus is either the most wonderful thing to happen to man, or it is the worst. Christmas is no time to play tokenism with God. It's no time to play tokenism with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads me to the last contradiction associated with Christmas. And that is the contradiction of celebrating the birth of Jesus while being disobedient to him. It is so tragic to see people in our society celebrate Christmas while refusing to submit to the Christ of Christmas. That's the ultimate contradiction. And it's, just, and it's not just an apparent contradiction or a paradox. It is a real contradiction because people celebrate the very event that will ultimately result in their damnation. Don't be a part of the contradiction of Christmas. Don't celebrate the birth of Jesus while refusing to submit to him and obey him. Submit to him today. Worship the Christ of Christmas. Love 
the Christ of Christmas. Follow the Christ of Christmas. Let's bow together in closing. As we close our time together this morning, I ask you, are you committing the contradiction of Christmas? The contradiction of celebrating the birth of Jesus while refusing to embrace Him? Celebrating the birth of Jesus while refusing to worship Him? Celebrating the birth of Jesus while refusing to obey Him? Don't carry out the contradiction of Christmas for another year. Turn to Jesus Christ and embrace Him. Father, as we come through this Christmas season and watch what happens in society all around us, it is heartbreaking for us to see a society full of people celebrating Christmas while refusing the Christ of Christmas. Celebrating Christmas while they have no genuine love in their hearts for the Christ of Christmas. May that not be true of us. May we not live out or carry out the contradiction of Christmas. But instead, may we, like the wise men who came from so far, hundreds and hundreds of miles away, just to see and embrace and worship the Christ child, may that be the response that characterizes our lives so that we truly love and cherish the Christ of Christmas, in whose name we pray. Amen.